Hello, this is Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours. Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. And also, Real Sankara Hours dot podbean dot com for our rss feed so you can follow us um you're definitely going to want to follow us because we have another guest um who's also a longtime friend of mine um we're going to be talking about covid19 and um particularly institutional racism and how that's a public health issue for black people because if you've been paying attention to the news Black people are disproportionately dying from COVID-19, particularly in places like Washington, D.C. and and elsewhere throughout the country. Um, I'm Adam Hudson. Follow me at AdamHudson5 on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. And our guest, um, Colette, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Um, my name is Dr. Colette Harris, um, and I am a family medicine physician uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, I mostly, um, well, entirely right now, am providing care to people experiencing homelessness, um, and particularly with the COVID-19 pandemic, working to do um, screenings for COVID-19 in shelters, uh, referring for isolation and testing for people who are living at the shelters, um, for them to go to isolation and quarantine sites. Uh, performing rapid antibody testing and also seeing patients in our shelter-based clinic. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, how about you? So um, just to, uh, I, I guess, um, full disclosure, all three of us went to Stanford <laughs> University. So we have basically three generations of Stanford alum on this podcast. So uh, it's a, so interesting kind of Stanford reunion. Um <laughs> on this part of sorts of, of source yeah uh an unofficial reunion not not one through the alumni association but like um yeah colette i've known you since since college but like yes. uh talk can you talk about like um uh your educational background and um particular because you talk about because you said you you serve the homeless population but um from what i know about you 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 specialize particularly in the relationship between systemic racism and, and health issues, right? So do you want to go into that? Definitely. Um, that's definitely been an emphasis of um, kind of all of my education and my training. Um, when I was an undergrad at Stanford, um, I was an interdisciplinary studies and humanities major. And so in addition to my pre-medical courses, um, I took classes on like medical anthropology, race and biomedicine, the ethics and politics of public service, justice. Um, I then went on to get a master's in nutrition uh, from Columbia University. Um, I attended medical school at Howard University, um, a historically black um, university. Um, I then completed my intern year at Howard as well um, and graduated from the Swedish Cherry Hill Family Medicine Residency Program um, and really that was um, social justice, activism, like critical race theory was a significant part of my training there um, and worked at community health centers during residency and post-residency in Seattle. Um, I worked at Seattle Indian Health Board 
um, as my continuity clinic um, in residency, and then at Carolyn Downs um, Family Medical Center in Seattle, which was founded by the Black Panther Party back in the 60s um, prior to, nice. to coming here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little about my education and training, and I'm board certified in family medicine. Sweet. Um, that's a lot better than what I did when I lived in Seattle, which was just work at a pizza place. But pizzas, pizza feeds us. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So all three of us read. So, okay. So I'll just just jump right in. Uh, so Van Jones, um, who like he's a he's a CNN contributor and host, but he has uh he used to be a Maoist at one point. So which. Uh, I I have my doubts about that. <laughs> uh, he used to be like a little more radical. Anyway, so he wrote this piece, um, a CNN op-ed. Uh, he wrote it April twenty fourth, twenty twenty. By the way, we're recording this episode April 29th, twenty twenty. So the title is "I'm someone COVID nineteen could easily kill." Here's what I am doing about it. Um. So basically, he got a lot of pushback, but he um, uh, he's talking about like the the health factors within the black community and why that makes us more vulnerable to COVID nineteen deaths. And he his main point is like he, he's trying to he's trying to make two arguments that contradict each other. So he said uh, the government needs to take more responsibility for ending the structural systemic racism on full display right now in our healthcare and economic systems. And then he said, black people need to take more responsibility for our individual health choices. And so this is basically like the sort of old argument that, Hey, the reason why you Negroes are dying is because you eat too much fried chicken and all that soul food. And that's that, that, that is why. So, uh, what do you, what do you guys think? Like, what's your first impression? Like when you read when you read it, or what what he said. Van Jones is falling off, man. It's uh, this is this almost reads like a parody of the kind of thing he would write because he makes like his actual point about how you know, you know the health problems black people face in America are the product of systemic racism, which is like very obvious to anyone who's paying attention but then he's like but what if like rapper and i mean let me just read it he says black influencers set the agenda for global culture we can make the quest for personal health as cool as we have made the quest for personal wealth (laughs) imagine if rap videos and black tv shows dark started showcasing push-ups peloton and healthy green drinks in the same way they often showcase fashion in foreign cars. So bad. Then he goes on to like talk about what Jay Z and Beyonce and Diddy and Common, you know, the the great leaders of of the black community, amongst others, what they've been doing. It's it's I I mean he probably has like some sort of healthy thing he's trying to sell, and that's probably why he wrote it. But <laughs> this is just right. Like, oh my God, this is new lows um, even for him. I mean, I think that the the rhetoric around behavior changes and healthier choices is problematic um, because it really ignores the structural nature of the problem. 
Um, I think that the behaviors are really limited by access. So your choices about your health are really limited to what is accessible to you. Um, and there exists a racialized access to healthy food, safe housing, jobs, healthcare, clean air, green spaces, spaces to exercise. Um, like we know that black people um, are disproportionately exposed to air pollution. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, he says, I abuse my body through stress and overwork. And I would really argue that capitalism, colonialism and racism abuses the black body. Hmm. not his personal choices yeah um, and like you said like oh you're eating too much fried chicken um i don't think we're dying from coronavirus because we eat too much soul food um we're dying because food apartheid and environmental racism having jobs that expose you to occupational hazards violence incarceration um all of these um injustices cause chronic medical conditions like that's why you see disproportionate numbers of high blood pressure high cholesterol diabetes respiratory conditions in the black community um, and then you combine that with the implicit and explicit bias within the healthcare system mm. um, and then you see the disproportionate suffering in the black community from COVID 19. and and something else he said i i i, I want to pop up this quote um because mm -hmm. he because here's the thing was like so weird about this this article and this is kind of i think apropos of van jones it's something he likes to do he's trying to like sort of carve out some sort of nice little middle middle ground position on this and right. and he's he's he works for cnn so it's like this is sort of very typical within their ideological line but so he says like yeah like we have challenging jobs that pay less and da 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 and then he says, there are other factors as well. Many traditional quote-unquote black foods boast more, much more cholesterol and sugar than the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recommends. And to some African Americans, healthier choices like adopting a plant-based diet, exploring meditation, practicing yoga, etc. may seem culturally alien. And it's like, okay, so he's basically saying that there's something intrinsic within black right. culture right. that that right. that makes us eat shitty food right. and one of my uh reactions to that is like okay so that means white culture is somehow healthier but i don't know i've, I've seen plenty of unhealthy white people right and i think that's the problem just with like how like medical textbooks and medical education how it presents um, like racial differences, like it mm. will either present them as genetic, which we know is false because race is a social construct and not a biologic one. Um, it is not genetic. Or it will say that, you know, this is cultural, this is behavioral. So there is like an inherent pathology within the Black community or within Black culture um, and ignore the like systematic oppression. Um, that is causing these differences. Yeah, I mean, he's really doing something pretty criminal in the way that he's like, not he's he doesn't really even lay out the exact case because I know that the neighborhood I grew up in in Columbus, Ohio, which has extreme uh, economic and racial disparities, like the infant mortality rates, you know, are on the level of third world countries. That's not a thing that can be 
solved by doing yoga and drinking green juice. I mean, it's right. It's absurd. Yeah. Even yeah. Yeah. Even where I live, Pittsburgh, California, which is like a post-industrial working class, mostly non-white area, like um, we we live not too far from an actual dump like a, a an actual waste dump in my neighborhood mm-hmm. it's like so so there's that and also um we also have high rates of asthma um mm-hmm. and also in Richmond California which is uh for those of you who don't know Richmond California is um on the other side of the bay from San Francisco so like there's San Francisco on the other side is Oakland Richmond's further north from Oakland so Richmond has an a major oil a major Chevron oil refinery and they also they have like notoriously high rates of asthma like basically like if you if you're a young and it's a mostly poor low income black and hispanic uh community so i i know cuz i, I cuz I, I work there uh, at the community college and um uh like the like it's it's in Richmond it's literally normal to basically have like a you know high rates of asthma because of the environmental exactly. pollution from from the oil right. refinery um just i think of a very anecdotal example if i if i may yeah um my my dad he worked in a glass factory for 28 years um the glass factory eventually closed um several years ago because complying with EPA standards was deemed too costly by the owner. Um, He was exposed to all of the chemical ingredients that are used to produce glass. Um, He would be, you know, ladling glass on a hot furnace platform and he was diagnosed with a lung condition. Um, He had recurrent sinus infections, like joint aches and pains. Um, He recently, and my dad, he is you know, very healthy, works out pretty much every day of his life. Um, And he recently went back to have um, like follow-up pulmonary function tests. Um, And I think the factory closed in like 2016 now. Um, Mm -hmm. And now like so many years later, as a much older man, um, his pulmonary function tests were completely normal now. Um, And I think that just like seeing that um, has really, and like growing up, um, really, even though like when I was growing up, I didn't really have like the vocabulary to um, like explain what I was seeing. Like that mm. just really informed my practice, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's also a very good point that it is that there's this sort of systemic disparities and underdevelopment. And then there's also just capitalism itself that. Right that grinds workers that are disproportionately black, you know, in mm-hmm. under its heels. And, oh, I, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll get into, like, uh, so I'll close off the discussion. We'll, I'll wrap up the discussion on the article that we can get deeper into the nitty gritty of, you know, racism and public health. But, uh, mm-hmm. um, so like, this is one of the things, like when I first read this, cause I saw it on a friend's Facebook page. And there's like a lot of back and forth and shit. And um, one thing that I mean, I'm not a doctor, so like, you know, this my knowledge is limited. But also, you know what? Van Jones is not a doctor, and he didn't. <laughs> he, 
we and we that that's why we have an actual doctor on our podcast to have a, a rebuttal to someone who's not a doctor talking about COVID nineteen. Anyway, uh, it's, what I found there is something about this article just from a writer's perspective that he was basically assuming a level of authority that he does not have, and mm-hmm. from what I know so far about COVID-19 or about viruses in general, which it's COVID-19. And this is something we mentioned in our our first podcast about COVID-19. It's a very new virus and it transmits at a very fast rate that we're not used to. And that's why it's basically, you know, that's why the entire country of Italy basically shut down for weeks on end. Um, So this is a virus that our bodies are not immune to yet. Hence the whole weird conversation about herd immunity, which which seems kind of ridiculous. But our bodies are not immune to it, right? So um, it seems like, just from a observer's perspective, um, the only way that we that this this how we can be how how this can be fixed, quote unquote, is either by a vaccine or antiviral treatment. In the same way that like our bodies over time became a little bit more resistant to the flu. And so when it comes to the flu, it's like, okay, every season you get a flu shot and then you're immune to the flu and you, it's not going to knock you out. Um, there is no vaccine for COVID-19 and there's, there's no publicly available, at least as far as I know, um, widespread publicly available antiviral treatment. So it seems like without those two things, any kind of advice to treat COVID-19 is sort of like, we're just trying to do the best we can with a bad situation. Um, but the way Van Jones sets up his argument is that he's basically saying without openly stating, but the way he's laid out is that like, Hey, if you just, um, take Jay-Z and Beyonce's plant-based power couple, like, uh, nutrition (laughs) diet or, uh, P P Diddy's partnership with Ariana Huffington to promote sleep meditation through audible.com uh commons vegan whatever um no he's a pescatarian now oh (laughs) so he's basically saying like hey if you follow these steps you black people you can basically be uh immune or protected against covid19 and nowhere in his article does he mention vaccines or antivirals so colette i wanted like (laughs) like your perspective as a doctor like do, do you do you think the way he's laid out this argument, like, is it is is he making a remotely good argument? <laughs> I, I definitely think that he, it seems like he's conflating, like, transmission and contracting COVID-19 and, like, the risk factors for, like, worst outcomes if you were to become sick. And like you said, like, green juice, yoga, like, that's not going to prevent you from contracting COVID if a COVID infected person coughs on you and you touch your mucous membranes. Like there's, there's a difference um, that I think is a little muddied in the article. Yeah. 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 His, I guess the way he um, goes about it, the, his out is saying to create a pandemic resistant black community, whatever that means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. But if we were to broaden this out, if if we were to do that, 
I mean, if that were really the task, wouldn't we need something like, I don't know, universal health care? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I mean, like, again, it seems like, you know, without a vaccine, we're doing our best to manage a situation that's just bad. Right. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and Colette, can you um, like what if what have you seen when it comes to treating patients in, in D.C.? Because uh, I think I remember you shared there are some numbers about like the deaths of like it was going by like deaths of COVID-19 in D.C. And like the number of black people's deaths was like incredibly high. It's like what what it, what have you seen like on the ground when it comes to treating people? Mm-hmm. Um. Uh... Well, I think that, um, like, our, I think it goes back to, um, like, the very, the risk factors that I think are very much due to the systemic injustices that we see. So, um, there was, I think... I'm very concerned about our patients who um, are experiencing homelessness because mm. not only are they living in a congregate setting um, in a shelter um, without like private rooms, without the ability to physical distance. Um, if you're living out on the street, not having access to sinks or soap and water um, also because of racism, because of, poverty and food insecurity and food apartheid and not having safe housing um like they are more vulnerable to um to poor outcomes Mm. uh from covid um and so um that's why we've been like trying to go in and um like identify people who have concerning symptoms and essentially like get them out of that shelter um, and refer them for like isolation and testing um, to kind of prevent the spread. Um, It's just a population that is um, like experiencing like structural violence, like pre pandemic. Mm, Um, And so it's just like a, a setup for disaster. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's the, yeah, I want, I do, I do want to, I guess, go into that a little bit more because yeah. the like homeless or houseless populations are, yeah, there's, it's like getting, it seems like getting any sort of medical care is extremely difficult in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. And so then, you know, also from just from what i've heard you know in about sort of what homeless shelters are like it does seem like they're disease breeding grounds right. and you know there is a picture you probably i don't know if you saw it but in las vegas they like painted giant oh, right. like right. six foot you know body size spaces on the concrete um to to you know allow people to sleep on the street while practicing social distancing which was one of the most cursed like america images i've seen right. in a while right but it's interesting i guess how you know the like public health you know 
people make the argument that like, oh, you know, we shouldn't give homeless people homes because I don't know, it res- removes the incentive to work or something. I don't I don't actually know what the argument is, but cities don't want to do it. But it seems to me like, you know, putting do that that solving the problem that way is like the only responsible public right. health, health outcome. Right. No, I agree. I um, completely agree with um, like housing is healthcare. Mm. Um, and I believe in housing first. Um, mm. And if it were, if I were in charge, um, everyone would have housing um, or at least everyone experiencing homelessness would have a hotel room during this pandemic. Um, I think that that is the most, um, I think that's just the most uh, humane and most appropriate um, public health decision that could happen at this time. Um, I know that DC has um, been um, like uh, trying to place people who are more medically vulnerable um, in um, hotel rooms so that they can practice kind of self-quarantine to prevent them from exposure to COVID. um, I think that that uh, more can be done. And let's, yeah, so um, let's move on from Van Jones because I think Mm -hmm. we've all agreed that uh, he's full of shit. Um, And let's go at like yeah like the meat of um, because I, like I think what like what we were ta- I was talking about before we started recording is that when I think particularly and this seems like a very American thing and I want to emphasize it seems very American because um, like in America like we're it's a very individualistic culture um, compared to uh, other countries I think. And normally when we look at health, it's like, oh, the reason why you're unhealthy is because something's wrong with you. Um, like, like, let's say if you have a mental health issue, it's because you yourself are crazy. It's not maybe the world around you that may be uh, bad or something wrong with it. There's something wrong with you. Or if you have any kind of physical ailments, or f- physical illnesses, um, is something that you as an individual did, not the world uh, around you. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask that. Like, what, what do you like? What do you think of that mindset in terms of how in the United States how we look at health? That like it's just an individual thing. It's uh, individuals like we're removed from whatever factors and forces of the world around us and our health outcomes are only determined by what we do. And if you are sick, there's something wrong with you and you need to change your personal behavior. So like, uh, what, what do you think of that, that mindset in terms of how we, I think, view health? Um, I, I guess I think that it needs to change completely because that it's false. Um, mm. the false narrative. Um, we all exist in this world together. We all exist in the environment, um, around us. Um, and I think that the, that like 
individualistic um, uh, perspective, um, like, prevents us from, like you said, having uh, socialized healthcare. Mm. Um, uh, It, you know, people are demanding, you know, they want to go back to to life as normal. People don't want to participate in, you know, the um, the the lockdowns and the stay-at-home orders because you know they're they're bored or they want to get back to life as normal. Like it's about it's very self-centered. I think. Um, yeah. To change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you? Yeah. I like to. I guess go further into like what are the problems of like public health in a capitalist society where it seems like there are so many incentives against just even the very concept of public health. Right. Um, Well, I think that um, capitalism, like the more I practice, the more I'm convinced that (laughs) capitalism is really incompatible with public health. Mm. Um, You know, you have people who um, like if, for example, looking at COVID, like people who are unable to stay home because they have to go to work um, or their, you know, their health care is um, associated with their job. They have employer health care through their employer, so they have to continue working. If they don't work, they'll lose their income, they'll lose their health care, um, they'll lose their housing. Um, really, everything is like prevents us from like practicing appropriate public health measures um, because it's all about profit and not about people. Yeah. Um, I think the other one of the, I haven't, I have to limit my, like how much I pay attention to this for my own sanity. But one of the things that struck me is, you know, sort of in the way, like, they say like Katrina was not a natural disaster as much as it was a social disaster. It's a product of neglect and corruption and all that stuff. And I feel like in many ways, this is like a social pandemic where like half of it is the disease itself. And the other half is the uh, sort of, you know, insane, not just Trump, but, you know, 40 years of neoliberalism, basically removing mm-hmm. the state's ability to act. I guess my question is like for someone who is, you know, on the front lines, how is it how has it been like having to follow like you have to somewhat pay attention to that circus, you know, to just so you know like what you're going to do the next day. Right? You mean, like you know, or like I mean, how well, I don't this, listen to anything Trump oh. says. But I mean, like, yeah, I, yeah, maybe not him specifically. I, I just don't listen to him. But I mean, but I mean, like, it breaks down even to you know, like everyone was. I, the New York media, I guess, was going gaga for Cuomo, but he was, you know, doing major mistakes. And but yeah, I guess like it goes all the way down to the local level because there isn't like a national response plan right, for it. Right. So, yeah, how how is it dealing with that, I guess? I mean, I, I do think that that is very, it is stressful, like, to hear, you know, that states and local governments are, like, competing for PPE because there's hmm. no, like, nationalized, coordinated response. Like, hmm. knowing that is, like, an additional stressor 
I think, mm. um, being on the front lines. But, um, like I said, I try not to listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none of us do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, um, I mean, like, uh, I, I think, uh, Peter, what you were saying about the circus, I think, uh, from, from what I took from that, it's, it's not even just Trump, but it's like, um, like, I... Like, even if you don't have to pay attention to Trump individually, because he's the president of the United States, he basically sets the tenor for the political landscape, for better or for worse. Yeah. And mm-hmm. our our uh, sort of collective political consciousness revolves around just basically the brain of a buffoonish gargoyle, right? Like, so, like, and so, um, yeah, because it, it does, I mean, because, like, uh, because what we're talking about, like, you know, because there's this lack of a coordinated response, I mean, you can draw to two factors. Uh, one, we do not have universal nationalized health care like the rest of the industrialized world. And two, um, we did not have a coordinated central government response to the crisis compared to countries like South Korea, Vietnam, um, and, and also New Zealand. Uh, has has done a better job of beating back coronavirus. I mean, not in terms of like again, like not in terms of curing the virus because again, there's no vaccine. But in terms of managing the severity, flattening the curve. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I guess from what you're saying, Colette, because th- because there has been no um, coordinated national government response, and a lot of that is due to trump because i mean he refused to his administration refused to uh take the who test and administer tests nationwide and do the certain kinds of steps that other countries have done who have been able to manage this crisis a lot better is that fair to say it's because like because of the lack of government response as a result of the trump administration's mismanagement it's made your job harder I think so. And I just think like, I cannot remember um, which country this was that I, I had read, you know, like, if if you know that if you, there's a stay at home order, and you know that the government is going to like deliver food and deliver supplies to your door, like that, like, enables you to, like, comply with um, these these guidelines and so i think even even without trump in the picture going back to what we were saying about just like american capitalism being incompatible with public health like i think that we really would need a society that could have that kind of like social support um so that people could stay at home Mm. do you see right yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's basically where we're at right now, especially with the, um, I mean, the other circuit that's going on is in Congress when it comes to these uh, stimulus checks, which mm-hmm. um, apparently, by the way, um, there's so far we're only going to get one check. It's not like going to be monthly checks. We're right, going, right. We're only, yeah. yeah, which like, like who the fuck is going to survive on $1,200 for a one-time payment in one month? that a lot of people have not gotten yet like yeah yeah um 
because that is because that is the other problem is then like exactly what you said is that if 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 we were in a situation where the government could manage the economy for even a month uh where you know it would it would be much easier to do all this stuff but you know we've now seen that the market the forces of the market are literally at odds with public health like it's a complete and total antagonism (laughs) and i don't you know it's it's kind of insane to me and i think then about right like the the problem is not just getting the vaccine because we could you know somebody in cuba will probably synthesize a vaccine before some pharmaceutical giant in the u.s but we won't take we wouldn't we wouldn't take cuba's vaccine and we would have to wait until the pharmaceutical giant can you know synthesize it and then patent it and then make and be able to distribute it profitably and all that stuff and it the whole thing is just right you have to have insurance to pay for it and if you didn't have insurance then you couldn't get the vaccine and and and, uh um the one thing i I want to thread is uh the relationship between um systemic racism in health and like there is a quote by nina turner was on um says show the rising on the hill with the yeah uh she was uh she 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 says how she made a very sharp point I'm, i'm paraphrasing what she said but she said um basically being black in america is like a public health issue or being poor in america is a public health issue like just living as a poor person or a black person or an indigenous person or a person in any kind of you know if if you're at the bottom of the social economic and political ladder um you're you're kind of in a state of state of endless pandemic um so as a doctor dr harris who specializes in this uh could you explain like like explain how you know being black and being poor is basically a public health issue regardless of um covid19 and the Mm -hmm. pandemic we're facing now um well i think um it goes back to um really understanding that like blackness um is not like inherently a risk factor Mm -hmm. um because race is a social construct um that there's nothing like inherently pathologically wrong um with being black the the risk factor is the racism um that is experienced and um again like really everything that we can do to be healthy um, has been racialized um, throughout our history. Um, just housing, jobs, food, access, um, exercise, outdoors, you know, every access to healthcare. Um, and then our experience within the healthcare system and our experience with medical providers, history of um, like medical experimentation, um, all of that like contributes to um, to poor health and to um, like 
that is how racism is a like a public health crisis um, even prior to to COVID nineteen. And can you go into the medical profession, like, um, in a sense that like mm-hmm. how does how does like within the medical profession how mm-hmm. do they um how do they view black people as as people mm-hmm. and also like how do they treat black people because i've heard like stories of black patients being like you know not not having um like adequate health care from from health professionals from so providers, right? yeah yeah so can um, you can you go into that like how definitely. yeah um they um there was a study recently um i think a few years ago i think it was the university of virginia um don't quote me on um and it uh like interviewed um, like uh, medical professionals, I think medical students um, and about like um, like view their views of, of their black patients. And even among medical professionals, um, there were kind of false um, preconceptions about like black people and the experience of pain or mm. having like thicker skin or like blood clotting differently. Like there were like false uh, beliefs about black people, um, even among like the similar views among people who had no medical training compared to people who did have medical training. Mm. Um, and I think that that is very concerning because if you're a medical professional, if you're a physician or your nurse um, has um, these views about, you know, black people don't experience pain um, similarly, um, then, um, you know, people's pain is going to be inadequately treated or, mm. you know, they may not get the intervention that they're, um, that a, a white patient presenting similarly would. Um, I think that there's, there's also been studies that, um, like race concordance, um, with patients and providers, um, having better, um, outcomes, um, when a patient feels that they, that their provider looks like them and they can relate to their provider, mm. um, that that will, um, promote health, um, and so that's been a passion of mine as well, has been um, uh, like recruiting more um, people of color and more black people um, to the medical profession. Yeah, that that que- the question, the issue of pain, I always find fascinating because it goes back like literally all the way, you know, because the argument back in the day for using African slaves was that um, Europeans just couldn't withstand it. They couldn't withstand the conditions. And it was like, and, you know, it's even though from what I I remember reading somewhere, there was like the average life of someone in a Haitian sugar plantation was three years, but somehow it was like our bodies were sturdier. And it even gets to like, you know, I don't like, because I guess, people view white skin as like more visibly bruising um, than like be, they don't see it. it doesn't show up in, you know, 
I don't, I, I'm sure there's many problems with that assessment, but that's sort of the like colloquial idea. And, you know, also just literally having to hold the pain of racism for, you know, 400 years and being able to like, you know, seeing that, seeing the ability to withstand that as, you know, almost a symbol of strength. It seems like all of that collides, like, you know, 400 years of history collide, like in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even um, as someone who's covered police violence for a couple of years, um, what you're saying about black pain, like you see it even in coverage of police violence, like, you know, the descriptions of black victims of police violence it's like i mean like 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 michael brown or there is this there's this idea that black people can't feel pain and so when you shoot black people then it's like oh they don't feel pain and so it's like it's a way of dehumanizing black people so like when people react to black death it's it's sort of like uh like a scene is less tragic um Mm -hmm. And one thing I noticed, like, I wrote a story years ago, but um, when you were talking about how the medical profession reacts to black patients, it actually made me think of this, um, because I, I was interviewing a couple um, um, uh, mothers who were, mothers whose children were killed by police, like, black mothers who lost their their young sons, yeah, most of, most of, a lot of them were, were sons, um, to police to police shootings and uh i remember talking to one mother and she said um their reaction from therapists like mental health professionals like they just didn't understand it because a lot of mental health professionals were white so they had no idea when it came to dealing with police violence whereas Mm -hmm. if you're black you know like that's because because of the reality of systemic racism the idea that just because you're black, your your life could be snuffed out by the police and there could be no justice, we've been conditioned to treat that as something as normal. And so someone who's white, uh, like doesn't like like they don't really experience that. And so she was telling me that um, amongst her therapists, she she said like it was hard to relate to the therapist because she just didn't on she the therapist couldn't understand because you know the mother had to go through therapy just to deal with the grief of losing her kid Mm -hmm. by police shootings Mm -hmm. and she was saying like that's that she was saying a lot of mothers had very very similar experiences that the particularly mental health professionals when it came to treating people who lost their loved ones to police violence um they were just inadequate because it's like 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 i I think they would get questions like well are you sure the police meant to do that like just sort of (laughs) like questions that were like very clueless but it it shows like how like there's some actual imagine can you can you imagine being in the in a therapy session and getting like the cross-examination yeah oh my god yeah and but yeah like uh and there are some I think Erica Garner, I remember I, I met Erica Garner before she passed away, but um, one thing that's come up is that a lot of people, a lot of black folks who lose their loved ones to police violence, uh, some of them die of broken hearts and grief and just this distress of distress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it, like what you're saying reminds me of that, like mm-hmm. the, how like the 
how deep the systemic racism, even within the medical profession, Mm -hmm. how, how deep that is. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. I think, um, just thinking to what you were just saying, like going back to like risk factors, just like the very stress of being black in America and experience the stress of experiencing racism is a risk factor Mm. um, for, for poor health um, in and of itself. Um, And I think that many, um, when we're talking about mental health, like you said, um, I think having a provider who you can relate to is, is very important. um, And like all medical specialties, particularly uh, mental health, because I think so much of our mental health um, challenges like are rooted in in racism um, and our experience with racism. Um, and so having a provider um, that can relate, I think, is is really critical. Yeah, is I I'm sure. Well, I I don't. Maybe they updated it, but I don't think institutional racism was like in the DSM. You know, for for a long time. So there literally just like wasn't even the capability mm-hmm. to discuss it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh actually, yeah, that I it, oh man, this is going on a tangent, but um and we got like <laughs> 6 or 5 minutes, but I do remember yeah. when I went into therapy when I had to take a mental health break from graduate school because I I was just dealing with um two completely separate worlds, the graduate school and my black working class roots and uh just the inability like it was just hard to relate with the institution of graduate school and just balance between two different worlds like actually caused a lot of anxiety and stress for me so i had i had to just leave but i do remember my therapist she was saying um the thing she was pointing out she's like okay yeah you're dealing you're literally dealing with uh institutional racism and that's linked to your anxiety mm-hmm. like that uh, she literally said that like last year mm-hmm. but it seemed like uh, uh it seemed like a new thing mm-hmm. i guess like yeah um uh, do you, think, oh go ahead oh i was just gonna ask like do you think the medical profession do you see them do you see any parts of the medical profession updating their practice to address their, those realities or um, I, I do think that they're like in um, the like clinics and places that I've worked, um, people are thinking about this and talking about like trauma informed care and intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's also been talk about, um, I was just thinking of like your experience about like my experience with like imposter syndrome. Um, yeah. The medical profession, and I think I've seen much more discussion. I think previously it was like, "Oh, you feel imposter syndrome because that's just how you feel," and I think now people are thinking about it in terms of like you experience imposter syndrome because people are treating you like you're an imposter mm-hmm. um, because of um, being yeah. a woman in this space. Um, so I do think that, like, and again, I think I've been privileged to be in to like work in places and practice in places that have this understanding. I don't know that that is like the general um, understanding Mm. from Mm. the the medical community as a whole. Mm. Wow. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the things that the medical community used to believe a while, even not that long ago, I mean, do you know, I don't know how long ago it was, but I think it was even in the 70s when they started, when they still tried to, like, make an actual argument that black people couldn't swim because our bones were too dense. Um, so I, it does seem like there's the, there's a long way to go in mm-hmm. that, in that regard. Right. Um, um and I, have, I, oh, go ahead. Or, no, I was just going to say if you had anything else you wanted to address. No, I don't think so. I think that's, I think we covered everything. Yeah. Um, I, I so, um, actually, I'll, I'll ask this just to wrap up, but mm-hmm. um, for, uh, I'll just address this, like, maybe, you know, our listeners who um, are concerned about, I mean, I think, well, this COVID-19 pandemic is, I think, hit us all with, like, a massive collective shock because it's it's very surreal. It's, it's something that, you know, does not happen it's like one of those once in a century things that like, Oh, there's a pandemic that knocks out the entire world and we all have to be quarantined. It's like, you know, like even with the Spanish flu, like there's, there's like very, 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 very few people in the entire planet who are alive, who've experienced the Spanish flu pandemic. So, you know, for people who, um, you know, are at home in, in feeling, um, hopeless and, want to do something not just about COVID-19 but also um the disproportionate deaths of, of black people and and other marginalized people of COVID-19 like what do you think the average person should do uh especially to support um medical professionals like yourself like I mean should people be like maybe donating masks or there is there anything like collectively that people can do to to yeah, to address this. I think that's a really great question. Um, I know that, like, um, I'm living in D.C. right now, and so I'm part of um, the D.C. Mutual Aid Network Facebook group. So I mm. know um, there's, um, like, mutual aid groups um, within mm. communities, like local groups, um, like, all over the country where people can get involved um, in terms of help- helping people um like meet their material needs with food and services during this time. Um, I think I've had a number of um, friends and coworkers, um, like past coworkers, sending me like sewn masks, fabric masks um, for me to be able to distribute um, when I was doing the screenings in the shelters. Um, So I think that people should like look to these groups locally to see how they can get involved um, and see how they can help people within their local community perfect and uh we got only a few seconds so i'm just gonna cut it right here otherwise tricast is gonna shut us off so colette thank you so much for coming on real sun car hours yeah Um, it was a real pleasure yeah all right so we're gonna be out in three two 